So here's what we see. We see that through Christ's death and resurrection, through Christ sending the very Holy Spirit of God to his people, that this isn't, this isn't just something for individuals, that this isn't just kind of something that happens within our own personal spiritual realm, that because of what Christ has accomplished through his death, through his resurrection, through his sending the Holy Spirit of God, the, the world has changed. So that this man who's been crippled, was born crippled, has been this way his entire life, experiences healing, renewal. This man, in his healing, embodies the coming kingdom of God. So it's not just that the, the Holy Spirit is sent so that you and I can feel good. It's not just that, 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 that the early disciples want to invite people to have a personal relationship with Jesus, as important as all those things are. It's that the disciples are demonstrating that it is a whole new playing field. This isn't just stuff we talk about or preach about, but that we expect God to do God things because God's kingdom is coming. Does that make sense? Okay, so... so Whole new landscape, whole new playing field. And as we're going to see today, because of what the disciples are proclaiming, because of how they're living, there are consequences to this. The disciples can't just proclaim that the world has changed because of Christ's death and resurrection and not expect there to be any consequences. So that's what we're going to look at today in the fourth chapter of Acts. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into that. Lord, um, we, we ask that you would, uh, just in the next few minutes, help our minds to be able to um, open up to uh, possibilities of what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do. We are people who are uh, and have been formed by a world that says that certain things are possible and certain things aren't possible, that certain things need to be our priority and other things don't. And yet today, Lord, in the scriptures, we're going to be confronted with, with something that's very different than that. We're going to be confronted with a way of living that's very different than what many of us have experienced. And so, Lord, my prayer is just that we be open to the idea that in you, there is a new kind of life for us to experience. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is the first Sunday of the new year, 2009. Um, which I don't know how you feel about that. Is that good for you? Yes? yes? Okay, some people, that's good. Um, usually, I really look forward to, to the new year. I, I'm not a very reflective person by nature. I'm a forward-looking person uh, to a fault. And so I love kind of the new year because it lets me just look forward. What's coming? What's, what do I get to be excited about? But I found myself this year with much more anxiety about, about 2009, about the new year than I, I would normally have. And so I've been thinking about it. I think there's some good reasons. Um, we, we have a, a, a government that is about to, to change hands in just a few weeks. And uh, for some folks, that's very hopeful. Others are ambivalent. But regardless, we know that, that this new, new president, new government has a lot of challenges to face, and we're not sure how how that's going to work, what that's going to look like. Our nation has been at war for many years, and I think for some of us, there's this, this anxiety about at least there is for me, how is this going to end as we pray for peace, as we pray for justice, and these wars seem to keep going. And, and it's almost become cliche, but the economy, 
I mean, you cannot, I cannot turn on the television or the news and not hear of like some new economic record that's been broke, not in a good way, um, like, you know, more bad news. And, uh, and so there's these kind of big looming things in our nation that make me feel a little uncertain about, about what's coming this year. Um, and then just to share personally, um, uh, my wife's job was uh, eliminated this year because of our economy. Her agency lost a bunch of funding, and, and, and we're, we're grateful because uh, they were able to find another job for her in a couple weeks. Um, but uh, it, it was this reminder that employment is not as maybe secure as it, as it once was. Um, we, we're renting a, a, a little apartment in Logan Square now, and our lease runs up in May, and we think, well, maybe we should purchase a home, but... What neighborhood do we purchase and how much home can we afford? Which neighborhood? You know, all these kinds of pretty adult-sounding questions <laughs> that I would prefer not to face. My wife and I have been married for a number of years. We've talked for a long time about adopting a child. And this year we think, okay, I think we're going to take some concrete steps towards adopting a child, which is exciting. But we have enough friends who've adopted to know that it's going to be emotionally draining. That's going to be taxing even on our marriage as we go through this process. That we have to kind of guard our hearts because you can only be so hopeful because you never know if the child that you think you're going to adopt is actually going to be available. And so for, for me personally looking at 2009, what's it going to be like? There's this uncertainty, anxiety. And, and I, I've had enough conversations with, with you folks to know that it's, it's not just me who's feeling some of these things. I know that that jobs for a lot of you is a, is a big one. Some of you are wondering, am I still going to have this job at the end of 2009? Others of you who, who have graduated college recently are getting really tired of looking for a job in your field. You, you've been uh, hoping, you've been applying, and you keep getting rejected. And, you, and are you going to get to work in a field that you've spent so much time and energy and money preparing yourself for. Um, I know that others of you are coming off of a, a relationally difficult year, to put it mildly, that, that you've had relationships just explode this year. Um, and there is a guardedness about you as you think about what this year might look like. Is there going to be somebody that you're going to uh, date, somebody that, whose relationship is gonna, you're going to develop? something that's going to last longer than a couple months. And I know there are uh, a number of you who aren't feeling very optimistic about that. And others uh, are, are aware that you're kind of carrying into 2009 some stuff you'd rather not be. Um, some, some, some sinful stuff, some addictive stuff, some behaviors that you really would have preferred to leave behind. Um, and so I'm, I'm not trying to be a downer here. I hope that you're not like me and you're just pumped about 2009. There's elements of it that I'm very excited about, but, but I do feel anxious. And here's my fear. My fear is that when I feel anxious, my, feel, my fear is that when the ground underneath me doesn't feel solid, I turn in on myself. I, I self-protect. My capacity to care and to love and to risk diminishes greatly. Does that make sense? My fear for us as a church is, is that as, as we kind of enter an uncertain year that we do the same thing, that our capacity to love 
that our capacity to risk, that our capacity to, to fully pursue God's mission for us diminishes as we kind of move into a, we need to protect, we need to watch out kind of mode. And so there's three questions. Can we go ahead and put these three questions up here? There's three questions that as I was thinking about this year and thinking about this text this morning that just kind of popped up for me. And these are personal. These are personal for me, but I, I think they apply for us as well. What is our missional pursuit going to look like this year? What will the consequences of our missional pursuit be? What will be the results of our missional pursuit? What is it going to look like as we as a church pursue God's mission for us? Can we imagine what that might look as we enter in this, this new year? What are some of the consequences going to be? We've heard this repeatedly uh, through this series, but when the Holy Spirit equips people for mission, we, we ought to expect there to be consequences. We ought to expect there to be opposition, hard things. And then finally, are there things that we can hope for, that we can long for, that we can pray for, that will be the results of our faithful pursuit of God's mission? Our, our text this morning lends itself to these questions because the early church, I think, faced a very similar terrain as we do. Uh, they're trying to figure things out. They lived in a time of great uncertainty. They had no history to look back on as a church of Jesus Christ. They were trying to figure out what does it mean to be this very diverse, eclectic, socioeconomically diverse community? How do we bring all these people together and pursue the cause of Christ together? What's going to happen when the religious authorities don't put up with us anymore? What's going to happen when our real pluralistic society that worships many gods gets tired of the fact that we're worshiping just one God? And so I think like us, this early church was facing these kinds of questions. How do we radically pursue the cause of Christ and not turn in on ourselves? not move into a, 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 a position of just protecting and guarding what we already have. So, so these are the questions that I want to ask. Let's read the passage this morning, and then let's get to these, let's get to these questions. It's a longer passage, so just, uh, uh, just uh, read along as I, uh, as, as I read out loud. Starting in verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So this man had been healed, and now Peter and John were standing in front of a crowd of people at the temple explaining what had just happened. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name... Do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Next slide. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. 
So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. All right, let's just jump right in to our first question here. What will our missional pursuit look like this year? As we go through these three questions, I'm just going to suggest a few ideas as we go along. Some I'm going to go over pretty quickly, others I'm going to spend some time on, okay? I think our missional pursuit this year is going to be bold. These disciples are standing on the steps of the, of the temple, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The temple is ruled by the Sanhedrin, this religious council. The Sanhedrin is made up mostly of the religious class known as the Sadducees. These are the powerful religious men. The Sadducees vehemently deny that there is any such thing as resurrection from the dead. Jesus got into this argument conversation with the Sadducees. There, there, there would be no worse place to publicly proclaim the resurrection of the dead than the temple. The, the, the center of religious power ruled by men who said there was no such thing as resurrection from the dead. Peter and John go to the center of religious power and boldly proclaim that in Jesus Christ there is resurrection from the dead. Do you understand that this is a bold thing to do? Our missional pursuit will be bold this year. Our missional pursuit will be confrontational this year. Some of you love that. Nice, sweet. Because some of you are confrontational by nature. Uh, I'm not talking about that. You need to chill out, those confrontational people. (laughs) You may not be helping. Here's here's what I mean. Um, If you have your Bibles, just open it up to verses 7 and 8. The, the, the rulers, the religious rulers, uh, ask Peter and John, and they say, by what power or what name do you do this? This is a question of authority. How can you do this, they say. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, and he goes on to very, very clearly proclaim in Jesus Christ the resurrection of the dead, whom, he says, you crucified. This is confrontation of the powers and the authorities. This isn't confrontation for the sake of confrontation. This is confrontation of the powers and the authorities. And you you have to imagine Peter and John, fishermen, very ordinary guys, standing before this huge council of very, very powerful men, probably some of the most powerful men that Peter and John would have ever interacted with, right? And so so this is, is, if you were to take a snapshot of this, you would say, I know who's going to win, it's, it's, it's the powerful. It's the ones with the authority. It's not 
It's not Peter and John, the two fishermen who followed the Messiah who was crucified. Right? But I, I love what Luke does here. In verse 8, then Peter, what does it say after that? If you have your Bible. Then Peter, then Peter, okay, so what Luke is doing is he's saying that snapshot is incorrect. It's not Peter and John standing by themselves, these two uneducated fishermen standing before this powerful group of men. What is it? It's Peter and John. You, you see, do you see what Luke's doing there? He's saying there's more, there's more than meets the eye going on here. This is not Peter and John confronting the powers and the authorities. This is the Holy Spirit of the living God confronting the powers and the authorities. This is important, new community, for us to see because uh, the, the, the life within the kingdom of God provides many, many opportunities where it looks like it's just Peter and John standing before the powerful. But when in reality, it's Peter and John filled with the Holy Spirit of the living God standing before the authorities. There's examples throughout history. We can think about people like William Wilberforce, right? This, this man in, in, the, in the British Parliament who spends literally his whole life working for the abolition of the British slave trade. And then finally, during his last years of his life, he sees it abolished. After being told over and over and over and over again, there's too much money involved, there's too much power involved, this is at the heart of our economic system, it's never going to change. Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin. We can think of, of, of a man whose life we're going to be celebrating here in just a couple weeks, Dr. Martin Luther King. Being told over and over again, you're moving too fast, you're asking for too much, you're rocking the boat too hard. And yet somehow being able to say over and over again, you can't see it now, you can't see it now, but one day, one day, one day, one day, freedom, overcoming. Um, there's a, a, a pastor and an activist named Jim Wallace who lives in Washington, D.C., and he tells the story of uh, a man who's now an archbishop, at the time was Bishop Desmond Tutu. Uh, you, you guys familiar with? Okay, so Bishop Tutu was um, uh, a bishop, African bishop in South Africa, at the heart, at the height of, of, of apartheid in South Africa. And, uh, and so I'm just going to read you this brief story um, about, about Desmond Tutu, and this is in the words of, of Jim Wallace. He, he says that... Um, he says that Desmond Tutu knew that eventually South Africa would be free. It was a religious conviction. He isn't an idealist or a utopian person. I was there in Cape Town in his cathedral when the place was surrounded by soldiers and police who outnumbered the worshipers three to one. Peter and John standing before the powerful Sanhedrin. They came into the sanctuary. He was preaching. They stood along the walls while he was preaching with tape recorders and pads, writing down what he was saying. They had already put him in jail once. They were saying to him, in effect, go ahead, be bold, be prophetic, and we'll put you right back in jail. He looked at them and pointed his finger and said, and if you've ever seen Bishop Tutu, he's a short little guy. You can just imagine him pointing his finger at all of these soldiers, taking notes. He says, pointing his finger at them, you are very powerful, but you are not gods. And I serve a God who cannot be mocked. You have already lost. 
So I invite you today to come and join the winning side. He goes on to say, the place erupted. People were on their feet dancing. The police didn't know what to do with dancing worshipers. (laughs) I was at the inauguration of Nelson Mandela, and I said, Bishop, do you remember what you said that morning? He smiled. I said, today they've joined the winning side. New community, we have to recall that when you and I are called, when you and I stand before the powerful, the authorities, particularly the unjust powers and authorities, we don't stand alone. That that may be what the power and the authority sees. They may see unschooled, uneducated, ordinary people. But you and I stand in the presence of the Holy Spirit of a living God. And so this year, our missional pursuit is going to be confrontational. It's going to be spirit-led confrontational as we interact with the unjust powers and authorities. Okay? This year, our missional pursuit is going to be selfless. Peter and John, they're called before these authorities. And, and I'll tell you what, if, if I was them, this would be my chance. I'm, I'm out of here, right? What are you doing? By what authority, what power are, are you here today? Are you saying these things? I'm like, um nobody's, I I would go into self-protective mode. Peter and John, though, what do they do? They preach the gospel. Uh, We do this by the authority of the man who you crucified, but who's been resurrected and who's changed our reality, as you can tell by this healed man. Our missional pursuit this year has got to be selfless. We have to be very uninterested in protecting ourselves. Okay, next one. Our missional pursuit is going to be Christ-centered. In that same, in that same section, verses seven through eight, by whose power, by whose authority do you do this? Jesus Christ who you arrested, Jesus Christ who was crucified, Jesus Christ who is resurrected, Jesus Christ who has changed the world. Pastor Peter has been hammering this over and over and over again. If the, if the gospel of Jesus Christ is not central to our lives and to our mission, then it's empty. And and you cannot read through Acts and not see this, right? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Why? Because the disciples couldn't do what they were doing. They couldn't live how they were living outside of Jesus Christ. There, There would be no point. There would be no reason. Their fellowship, their healing, their their witness. All of it centered on Jesus Christ. We have enough history that we can kind of rely on programs and structures and this is how we do things and this is our tradition. They had none of that. The only thing that held them together was the resurrected Jesus Christ. We can't miss this. We can't miss this this year, new community. All right, let's look at consequences real quick. Jesus had warned his disciples, there's going to be consequences. He said, you're going to be dragged before the courts. They're going to accuse you of all kinds of different things. It's, it, it's going to get rough, right? So the disciples, they were kind of, they knew this. They knew this was coming. And Jesus said, when that happens, don't worry about it. Easier said than done. So here's two consequences. There's probably more, but two consequences that I see from our text this morning. First, power will be questioned. Authority will be questioned. When you and I pursue God's mission... Our power, our authority is going to be questioned. So, so watch how this plays out, if you will. Look at verse 7. This is where the, the Sanhedrin has Peter and John brought before them and says, by what power or by what name do you do this? Now, 
This is not a question about belief. This isn't like the Inquisition where they're saying, well, you believe the wrong thing. Okay, let's just be really, really clear on that. The disciples aren't being arrested because they, they hold certain beliefs in their head. You get that? It's not that, oh, I believe in Jesus, so okay, you're going to get thrown in jail. Huh? The disciples are in trouble because their beliefs led to action. Do you see that? There's no other reason for them to be in trouble except that their beliefs led to action. And we know this because on the Sanhedrin, on this ruling council, there were Sadducees, but there were also Pharisees who did believe in the resurrection. People who may have agreed very much with what Peter and John were saying theologically about beliefs. For the rulers, for the authorities, it's not a question of belief. It's a question of action. People aren't real concerned about our belief. Can, can we just be honest about that? Don't we live in a culture where that, that is pretty tolerant of people's beliefs? Like, when was the last time someone said, I'm just upset with you because you don't believe the same way I do? Does that happen? I, I know I, you're going to get in some kind of, a, of an argument because of some nuance of theology or because you, someone believes in a different religion than you believe in. That just, we don't live in that kind of a culture, right? When are you going to get into that disagreement? when your belief leads to action. Let me give an example that I know some of you in our church have experienced very, very, very firsthand. Some of you have been raised by, by parents who have sacrificed tremendously for you, who, who have literally like kind of centered their lives around you so that you could have what they didn't, right? So you could have education that they didn't have, so that you could have opportunities that they didn't have, so that you could have status that they didn't have. They've made great, great sacrifice for you. And there's this expectation, this hope that you are going to step into a vocation, into a career that has earning potential, that has a status associated with it, that's going to make their sacrifice worthwhile. And some of you, I know, have felt this tension as you've wondered, am I being called into a vocation, into a career that's different than what my parents hoped for me? Your belief in what Jesus is doing in your life is leading you to ask questions about how, maybe what career should you be in. And I know that there, there are people in our church who are wrestling and have wrestled with how do I love, honor, respect my parents who literally have done everything for me. And while at the same time having this sense that maybe God is calling me to something different. I don't have an answer for that. Um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how that plays out for you, but I know that that's just one way that some folks in our church feel this tension. When, when, when your belief in what Christ has done in your life leads to a desire to take some steps. Here's another way that it plays out, I think. It plays out when our belief in Jesus Christ moves from our kind of private sphere of personal belief into the public sphere. This is what I mean. When it, when it stops... When, 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 when my belief in Jesus stops at sort of my own life and my own little quiet time at home and that's as far as it goes, I think people are pretty cool with that. When it moves into the public sphere and I say Jesus Christ has changed the world, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has implications for everything, that there's, there's no part of creation that Christ doesn't have lordship over, that's a problem, right? Are people okay with that, do you think? 
that making any sense, Sandra? Has that been, I mean, I'm not off track here? Okay. So Sandra, if you don't understand what I'm saying, talk to Sandra afterwards. We are fine with people's personal belief, but the minute that you and I say, no, Jesus, Jesus' rule, Jesus' reign, Jesus' lordship isn't just about what happens inside of me, but what happens in all of the world, I think our power, our authority is going to be questioned at that point. That's going to be a consequence of our missional pursuit this year. This is also the first time that the disciples have been persecuted. There's going to be more to come. We're going to have plenty more stories about persecution to come. But this is the first moment where the disciples are arrested and questioned. This is the first time where Jesus' kind of prediction, this is going to happen, uh, comes true and they're experiencing it. I don't know how that works for you and I. Uh, I, I've heard a, 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 a million different sermons where pastors have said, well, well, we just need to be so thankful that we live in America because we don't experience persecution because there's religious freedom. I, I think there's some truth to that. I'm very grateful for that. But is, is that it? Do we only not experience persecution because we live in a religiously pluralistic society? Or could it, be, could it be that we don't experience persecution because sometimes we're soft on pursuing the mission of God? Could, could there be times where we don't experience persecution because our faith has been very, very privatized? And, and, and we don't actually expect Jesus to make much of a difference outside of just my personal sphere. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to claim to know the answer to that. But if, uh, if the early church is any indication, as you and I are intentional about pursuing God's mission, there will be moments of persecution. Last question. What will the results of our missional pursuit be this year? First, you and I better start expecting that people come to know Jesus. 5,000 men, Luke says, and Luke is, he's always interested in detail, so, you know, he's counting the, he's counting the dudes. <laughs> but there are a lot of other people who aren't being counted there. So this is a lot of people who are confessing the name of Jesus. So I, this is the question for us, is do we expect it? Do we expect that one of the results of, of our faithful pursuit of God's mission for us, do we expect that people are going to come to know Christ? Do you expect uh, uh, people who are in your sphere who, who don't know Jesus, do you expect it? Are you praying for that? Second thing is that it's not just that people will come to know Jesus. It's not just this, this hope, this expectation. It's that the gospel is being proclaimed. And we see this again in verse 7 and 8 when Peter and John are given a chance to kind of recant, to step back, to sort of, um, well, no, it's not really what you think it is. I'm not really questioning your power, your authority. I was just trying to do a nice thing for this crippled man. Instead, Peter and John proclaim the gospel. Instead, Peter and John say, you remember Jesus, right? Of course they do. (laughs) These are the men who who were directly responsible for Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. If you read Jesus' crucifixion account, you see the names Annas and Caiaphas. These are men of immense power. 
These are the men who had Jesus arrested. And before them, Peter and John proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the, just the interesting side notes. Wouldn't this have been a perfect time for them to try to, for the authorities to have said, oh, no, no, he didn't resurrect from the dead? Wouldn't this have been a great moment to go, what are you talking about resurrection? I can show you where the body is right now. Apparently they couldn't do that. Apparently, apparently there's something going on with this whole resurrection thing so that when Peter and John proclaim the gospel, the authorities are taken aback because we don't know where the body is. Power is going to be subverted as we pursue God's mission. Some of you are, okay, I don't mean like we're stocking up guns in our basements or anything like that, taking, you know, revolution sort of thing. Um, this is what, this is, <laughs> yeah, if you're doing that, um, stop. Uh, so in verses 14 through 22, um, this is a longer section here, but, um, but it basically captures the religious leader's response to Peter and John. This is, this is, they've heard what they've said and then, and then their response. When they saw the courage of these men, uh, they couldn't decide what to do. Uh, they, they ordered them to withdraw and then they kind of have this debate. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing, we should warn them not to speak about it any longer. And then Peter and John say, no, we can't do that. We're going to keep talking about Jesus. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them. The powers and the authorities are confronted with this dilemma. What, what do we do with these people? If we let them go, we, we've shown that we don't have power over them. But if we punish them, then we make a whole lot of people upset because all they've done is heal a man. Do you see this dilemma? This is why nonviolent protest is often so, so effective because it puts the powers and the authorities in this dilemma of what, what, do, we, what do we do? If we walk away, we've shown that we have no power over them. If we punish them, we're punishing the innocent. We're punishing those who are working for justice, for peace, for mercy. What do, the powers and the authorities have been subverted by Peter's and John's action by proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God is active. There's a man who was crippled from birth who's kind of older now standing right next to him. You can't explain it, can't explain it away. God had done something. I asked, um, I asked Jenny. Jenny, wave your hand. Just Okay, so Jenny has been involved in her neighborhood with, well, I'm just going to read you this email that Jenny sent me. I want to show you how maybe this is playing out a little bit in our congregation, how somebody is in their faithful pursuit of God's mission, maybe in, in her own way, attempting to subvert the powerful and, and, and the authorities. Uh, so Jenny says, in June of, of 2007, her alderman included the community in a series of discussion regarding the development plan for Milwaukee Avenue. The voices that were heard belonged to developers, real estate agents, zoning lawyers, and a few better-off residents looking to make a buck. The zoning plan was finalized in October, but published less than 24 hours before it hit the floor of the City Planning Commission on December 11th. 
while a group of neighbors and business operators presented the alderman with an open letter and signed petition to postpone the vote, uh, the Neighborhood Association formally requested in writing that the alderman do the same. The city still rubber-stamped the proposal on the 11th. According to the proposal's own market research, over 70% of residents in the study area rent, while about three-quarters of those over the age of 25 do not have a four-year college degree. In other words, they prove the vast majority of us are low-income renters. However, in the proposal's household income approximate home cost tables, only 10% of the people living and working here will, will be able to remain once the proposal is carried out. Do you see that? In theory, only about 10% of the people living in the neighborhood are going to be able to afford to stay. In the summer of 2007, I believe the Lord was leading me to become more involved in neighborhood zoning. It struck me as odd since I don't own property, but I began going to the neighborhood association meetings where I learned how utterly corrupt and dysfunctional this association was. This is largely why the alderman was able to push the proposal through as quickly as he did. Frankly, I'm possibly the least qualified person to advocate for this cause. I don't even own a car, much less property. Peter and John standing before the authority. I have no clout or connections. I don't fully understand the legal processes behind all these decisions. All I have is an address, and if I lose it, my family will be flung out to the west side or even the suburbs. I have reached out to a core group of concerned neighbors about meeting again to discuss the possibility of an amendment. As soon as we can agree on a date, I will then go door to door, up and down the corridor to invite local business operators. My goal is for the community to draft an amendment that sets specific parameters for affordable housing and affordable storefronts, among other things. She goes on a little bit from there. This is one story of a person who, in their pursuit of God's mission, I'm hoping, I'm praying, is subverting some of the powers, some of the authorities that maybe don't have in mind the needs of these neighbors in this area. Finally, end with this one. Uh, One of my favorite verses in in the New Testament is in this passage. Uh, Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, they're standing before these authorities. They answer with courage to all of their questions. And then in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. We did a sermon series this summer about uh, some research called UnChristian. Do you guys remember this? And, and it was like Christians are, are, are just this laundry list of very negative, judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual, on and on and on and on and on and on. This is what the kind of culture's perspective about Christians is. There's another book that's out recently called They Like Jesus But Not the Church, talking about people outside of the Christian family. There's all these perceptions about what Christians are. But in this case, in this case, the authorities listen to Peter's and John's response, these unschooled ordinary men, and the only thing they conclude is that they'd been with Jesus, that these men had been with Jesus. They're astonished. They're astonished at their response. They're not annoyed. They're not put off. They're not bored. They're astonished by the courage of Peter and John. And they say, the only way that we can explain this is that they have been with Jesus. 
The only way that we can understand their action, the only way we can understand their power, the only way that we can explain the, the awkward position they've put us in is that they have been with Jesus. So one last question. Um, Jamie, let's go ahead and put up the last slide there. Where's our missional pursuit going to begin? And I think it's with this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? Have we been with Jesus to the point that our actions just naturally reflect who Jesus is so that people's responses, I don't get it, so it must be that you've been with Jesus. Are the way that we're living, the decisions that we're making, the powers that we're subverting, is this being done in a way that the only response, the only conclusion that people can draw is, I guess you're just real Jesus-y. You're just real Jesus-y. This is how we're going to end today. You got a card and a pencil when you walked in. If you didn't, raise your hand. We're going to, we'll, we'll pass out one to you. Uh, Uni, if you want to go ahead and come on up here. We're going to, um, we're going to give you about three to four minutes just to reflect on, on this last question. What might it look like for someone to take note that you had been with Jesus this year? Okay, so, so we've, we've, kind of, we've kind of painted a, a, an uncertain landscape We're not sure exactly what's coming. Some of us are facing this year with some anxiety. I I want you to just take a couple minutes and I want you to to, to imagine, to dream. Maybe it would look like this. Maybe this year, as I'm faithful to the missional call of Christ on my life, maybe someone's going to look at me and say, the only way I can explain it is because you've been with Jesus. What, what might that, is this a relational kind of thing? Is this a job sort of thing? Is this a risk that you're called to take that someone's going to look at, to observe, and say, the only way I can explain it? Is this something in your marriage or in a relationship that needs to change in you so that your spouse, so that your girlfriend, your boyfriend will look and say, the only way I can explain this change is that you've been with Jesus? Is this an area of just ongoing addiction or sin that finally is going to be taken really, really seriously so that the people in your life will go, the only way we can explain this healing that has happened is because you've been with Jesus. Is a conversation that has needed to happen for a long, long time? Is, is it an, an alignment of your verbal witness and, your, and the way you live, the things you say you believe and the way you actually live? So take about two to three minutes and just dream just imagine. We're going to collect these at the end if you're willing to give them to us. And what we'd like to do is share some of your responses over the next few weeks and on our website so that we can spur on dreams and visions within this community of how we together are going to live in such a way that people will look at this community and say, you are just, you're just Jesus-y. The only way we can explain it. And if you don't want to turn it in, if it's too private, you can hang on to that as well too. But go ahead and just take a couple minutes. We can talk about what our missional pursuit is going to look like. We can kind of 
prepare for what those consequences might be. We can uh, dream and and hope and long for what the results of our faithful pursuit will be. But it's going to start because you and I are associated with Jesus. So uh, when you leave in a few minutes, if you're, if you're okay doing so, leave those cards with us. We want to know. We want to know. Um, and we want to tell some of those stories. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to we're gonna sing together. Some of us, God, have been through this routine where we make New Year's resolutions and we kind of say, this year it's going to be different. This year I'm going to do this thing, not do this thing. And we last a week or a month or six months. Uh, Lord, some of us are very aware of that. Some of us have experienced this kind of religious tendency to try harder at the start of a new year. We're not interested in that. This morning, we're interested in the Holy Spirit of the living God empowering us, filling us, doing your work in us. We're not interested in trying harder. We're not interested in in relying on ourselves. We're not interested in any kind of a self-help deal that makes this year different. We're only interested in the Holy Spirit of God transforming our lives. Your son said that it would be through your spirit that we're equipped for this life, that it will be through your spirit that we experience community, that it will be through your spirit that we are sent together. And so that's what we ask for right now, is that your Holy Spirit would do your work in our lives. And as we dream, as we imagine the future, as we look forward to this year, we ask that your spirit would equip us for whatever's coming, that we would not turn in on ourselves, that we would not uh, live selfish lives, that we would not turn our backs on that which you're calling us to. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.